All right, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll find our text in the Blue Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to page 1256, and you can follow along this morning. While you're turning there, I want to share a few stats with you from some recent surveys about what the common American believes about this book that we're opening this morning, the Bible. Albert Moeller writes that recent surveys have found fewer than half of all adult Americans can name all four of the Gospels. Many Christians, Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples by name. How many were there? Dave? You have 12 to choose from. Most Christians in America can't name more than two or three. According to data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. I see some of you laugh. <laughs> Get this one. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. The good news is Christians did a little better. Only 81% of Christians think that's in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% of them thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to this poll believed that the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount was Billy Graham. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, summarizes these statistics in this way. We are in big trouble. Researcher George Gallup and Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large... They do not read it. They do not read it. When it comes to the world around us, the truth of the matter is, most people do not know what they believe about the Bible or what they believe is in the Bible. I wonder whether it's that much better inside the four walls of our American churches. Do Christians in America even know what they believe about the Bible? The good news this morning is that Paul, in his letter to first to the Thessalonians, is going to share with us three things that all Christians must and do believe about this word. And that's what we're going to spend time learning about this morning. These are not truths that are up for debate. These are not truths that are kind of blurry, a little bit fuzzy around the edges. These are things that Paul says we, as in Christians who are followers of Jesus, we believe these things about this word. So let's stand together as we receive the word of God from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
We're going to begin in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. You may be seated. The first thing that Paul shows us this morning that he commends the Thessalonians for, that they hold together, he says, number one, we believe that this word is the word of God. We believe this word is the word of God. Listen to his commendation again in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that you received the word of God, which you heard from us. When you received it, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Paul says the thing that as he's praying and he's speaking to the Lord that constantly comes to mind when he thinks of the Thessalonians is that when they were receiving Paul and what he had to share with them, they knew, they knew that they were not just receiving some new philosophy, some new man-made religion, some new spiritual fad that might improve their life. They fully believed that as they were receiving the message from Paul, the thing that was being handed to them was the very word of God. Paul says, number one, we believe this word is the word of God. And what Paul's making with this assertion is basically a twofold statement, and it's about the authority of this word and the origin of this word. So let's think about those two things. First of all, let's talk about the Bible's origin. Did the words on the pages in this book originate in the mind of men and women, people like you and me? Or did these words originate in the mind of God? Are these first and foremost the words of men, or are they first and foremost the word of God? If you're only willing to admit that these are the words of men, you may even say the words of very enlightened men, very spiritual men, holy, righteous men. But if you believe they are merely the words of men, then these words are completely powerless. We live in a post-modern post society that is engaged in a war of the words of men. Every man, every woman using his words trying to exercise power or to gain authority over one another. The man or woman with the most persuasive or the most aggressive or the loudest words is the one who wins. 
So friends, if these are just the words of men, then we are no different from anyone else. We're just in the marketplace shouting and trying to be the loudest one in the crowd. Doing everything we can simply to use these words in order to exert some kind of political or social or cultural power over other people. That's all we're doing if these are just the words of men. Sadly, many Christians today live practically as though these are merely the words of men. And we see it happen in this way. When they start to think that the Bible needs their help. The Bible needs a little oomph to help it evolve for the 21st century. Because, you know, the Bible sometimes embarrasses itself and makes its way out the door with its makeup on a little crooked. And it needs a little help. So they alter or they explain away or they just quietly ignore the parts of the Bible and try to make it, you know, give it a little boost so it's a little more competitive for today's market. Friends, it all comes back to a matter of origin. Is what we have in here, the 66 books of the Bible, just a library of men, even religious men, even the best of religious men, but their best intentions at trying to understand God from a human perspective? Is that all this is? Or is this the product of a revelatory, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent Lord of the universe? That is the question we're trying to answer here. Do we really believe that this word is the word of God? Because if this book really is God-breathed, as it claims to be, 2 Timothy 3.16, then it doesn't need our help. It doesn't need our assistance. It doesn't need to be dolled up before it's shown before the world. It doesn't need a makeover. The God who spoke these words is just fine in making sure that he has the last word in this universe without our help. We believe the Bible is the word of God. But this is also a matter of authority. Not just origin, but authority. Let's say, uh, for instance, that my kids, like the one who's over here misbehaving in the front pew, Teddy. Let's say that Teddy is coloring with his sister Caroline. And he wants the marker that Caroline is just hogging him. Won't share the blue marker with him. So he first tries saying... Caroline, give me the blue marker. Is Caroline going to give you the blue marker, Teddy? No. no, she won't do that. So he takes to plan B, and what does he do? He goes and finds mom or dad. He says, Caroline is hogging a blue marker. Make Caroline give me the blue marker. And depending on what mood we're in, I may or may not say, Teddy, just go tell Caroline, Daddy says, to give you a blue marker. Now he returns to Caroline, but this time he says the same thing, but what does he tag onto the front of it? Daddy says, give me the blue marker. What is happening there? We have a different level of, of authority carried with that command now, right? It's not just Teddy commanding his sister. Now he comes saying, well, this is what Daddy says. Give me the blue marker. Now, depending on Caroline's mood, she may or may not still keep that blue marker for herself. But this is the point. It's about authority. It's the same way with the word of God. When we say it's the word of God, whether it's coming through Paul or through Matthew or through Luke, it carries with it the authority of the Almighty God. 
Maybe some of you this morning have a uh, red letter Bible. Anybody here? You're not in trouble. You can raise your hand. Okay. Some of you have red letter Bibles. If you don't know what a red letter Bible is, it's a Bible where the, the, the sayings of Jesus, the things that are in quotes, Jesus said, quote, the quotes of Jesus are in red. And the rest of the text is in black. But here's the danger with red letter editions. If you're not careful, you may begin to be tempted to think that the things in red are somehow more authoritative and more important than the things that are written in black. Somebody with a red letter Bible, tell me what color is the book of Thessalonians written in? It's in black. But do you know what? Every single word in the book of 1 Thessalonians is as much the word of Jesus Christ as anything in red written in the Gospels. So if you want to make a distinction, Paul says it's this. While every other book in every library across the world and on every Kindle and in every news media feed and anywhere you may find words, while all of those words are written in black, every single letter of every single word and sentence in this book is in red. It's been soaked through and through with the authority of Jesus Christ who had sealed its words with the, his own blood. This is the only book that carries with it the authority to forgive sins, the power to grant salvation to all who believe. It bears in it the good news that the King Jesus has died on a cross to save his people from their sins. So whenever we are reading from the Bible, whether it's from the Law of Moses and Leviticus, or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, or from the Apostle Paul and his instructions to the Thessalonians, there is not a varying level of authority depending on who's speaking. All of these words, we believe, are the word of God. It's a matter of origin. It's a matter of authority. Why am I spending so much time on this? Well, because there are people in this world, especially in America, who would style themselves even as preachers of the gospel, who will discredit commands, for instance, that we find in 1 Timothy regarding proper gender roles in the church, or in Romans 1, or in 1 Corinthians 6, regarding homosexual practice. And they will say things like, well, these are the words of Paul. They're not the words of Jesus. And you see, Paul was a little confused. What we really need is to be red-letter Christians. As long as we're abiding by the red letters, we'll be just fine. But Paul reminds us today that true believers don't make any distinction. The words of Jesus, the words of Moses, the words of Paul, it doesn't matter. They are all the word of God. They all carry equal authority, regardless of whether they come to us through Moses or one of the prophets, through the mouth of Jesus himself, or through one of his sent apostles. God is sending us his very word. So to be a follower of Jesus is to totally surrender to the word of our king. You see, when we want to be able to pick and choose which words of the Bible we have to obey, we're saying, Jesus, can you make some room for me on the throne? I want to be in authority over the Bible, and I want to tell the Bible when and, and when it can't speak to my life. That's not the way it works. 
we either receive this whole word as the word of God, or we can choose to simply reject it completely. Number one, we believe the word is the word of God. Our second point, Paul's second point comes quickly on the heels of the first. It actually is right at the end of verse 13. Let me read to you what I left off there. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. So not only do we believe that the word is the word of God, but we believe that this word is, Paul says, at work. We believe this word is at work. And this has to do with two things. It has to do with the word's power, and it has to do with the word's purpose. We were sitting around the dinner table this past week, and we've been doing our family worship out of Luke's gospel. And there's a story that we read uh, that goes, you know, a centurion, he has this beloved servant who's really sick, and so he sends people, he hears Jesus is in the region, he sends some Jewish leaders to, to, to ask Jesus if he'll please heal his servant. And so the story goes that Jesus comes with them, and Luke tells us, when Jesus is not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now listen to this. But say the word and let my servant be healed. You see, the centurion had the same faith that every believer does. This word is at work. It has the power to heal. But say the word and let my servant be healed. This is what we believe is true about this word. It is at work. It is able to heal the worst of sinners. It has the power to turn the most vengeful, murderous man into a humble, father-hearted, motherly, caring missionary. And where's the proof? The Apostle Paul himself is proof enough, isn't he? Jesus says the word, and all of a sudden, this man who was one, at one time pursuing Christians to their death is now being poured out to build up the church. We believe the word is at work. Paul says, this word is at work in me. This word is at work in you, Paul says. It has the power to turn sinners into saints. One of the saddest things that I see about our culture today is that people do not believe that people can change anymore. Recently, there was a dust-up in Virginia. I'm sure you read about it. The governor himself, Ralph Northam, had some embarrassing photos come out of his medical school yearbook. One photo in particular of two young men, one who was wearing blackface. At first, what Northam did was he got up on a podium and he apologized for what he had done. But in a bizarre turn of events, he got up very shortly after into the same podium and then said, well, we can't really know whether that was me in the picture. What had he realized? He realized that we live in a born this way culture, as in the who you were is who you will always be. You cannot change. And he realized, if I admit that I was racist back then, there's no hope for me today. They will assume that I'm racist today. We live in a world that believes you can't change. 
But we as Christians believe the word has the power to do what this culture says is impossible, to turn confessing sinners into repentant saints. Paul writes to the Romans, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So Christians are this weird class of people who are not ashamed to admit their past. I was racist. I was a drunkard. I was a thief, an adulterer, a pornographer, a liar. All of these terrible things I'm willing to admit to you. But the word has the power to set me free. I don't have to be that person anymore because the word is at work in me. My old self is hanging on the cross with Jesus with all of its sin and the Jesus who is raised by the power of God from the dead and emerged from the grave is the Jesus who is now at work through his word living in me. We believe the word is at work and it is about power. It's also about purpose. The word's purpose Working in you is to bring about your sanctification, which is just a long word for saying the Spirit is using the word to make you more and more like Jesus. Making you more holy, blameless, and above approach than you were yesterday or the day before that. The word is at work to make you holy. Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What's he talking about there? The standard of teaching. This. And what is the word accomplishing in you? Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The difference between Christians and the rest of the world is not that Christians do not experience temptation or sinful desire or fleshly feelings. Christians actually experience the exact same temptation, sometimes even stronger than the rest of the world. The difference is that the Christian says, but the word is working in me. The world says, you were born this way. Whatever urges, feelings, desires you are experiencing, you just need to celebrate and plunge headlong into them because you can't change them. The Christian says, it's right. I was born this way, but I've been born again. And the word is at work in me. I am not who I was. I am not who I will be. The word will accomplish its purpose, which is to make me on the last day just like Jesus. That's the purpose. We believe the word is at work for that end. Finally, and thirdly, Paul says, we believe this word is saving. We believe this word is saving. Paul says the reason why the Jews are persecuting me and driving me out of every city is because they don't like the fact that everywhere I go, Gentiles are being. Verse 16, he says, By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may 
that they might be saved. Why are the Jews seeking to hinder Paul? Because they know when Paul speaks this word, something in their mind terrible happens. Gentile people are being saved and drawn into the people of God, and they don't like that. What Paul explains in verses 14 through 16 is that this word, which is saving, makes friends and it makes enemies. It separates the whole world into two different kingdoms. Those who receive this word, that is saving them, and those who reject the word. Look first at its friends, verse 14. Friends of the gospel, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the exact same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind. When the Thessalonians received this word that saved them, Paul says, you join a great group, a great group of people. You've got all of these friends, all the churches that are scattered across the world. You came into friendship with Jesus. You joined friendship with Paul, the apostles, the prophets. We are all friends here together in this saving word. When the word saves us, it gathers us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ where we become friends with all of the others who have received the message of the good news of salvation. Here we have Paul commending the Macedonians for following the example of an Israeli, groups of Israeli churches. That's 910 miles by airplane or 1,500 miles by land. Paul's saying these Macedonians, just because they didn't share the same ethnicity or background or culture, it didn't matter, he says, what, what most defined them was that they were the churches of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, we're in Macedonia. Yeah, you're in Judea. Ah, but we're friends because we are both together in Christ Jesus. What unites us with other believers is what united us with Jesus and with the prophets, with Paul and the apostles. It's this, Paul says, you Thessalonians suffered at the hands of your own countrymen. Your own people, your neighbors, your friends, they all persecuted you for receiving this word. Paul knows a little bit about that. Imagine for a moment you were traveling the world and you were going to all these cities. You were going to Berlin, you were going to uh, London and Shanghai and Rome. And every place you go, the moment you begin to tell anyone about Jesus... Expat Americans come pouring out of the woodwork and they try to drag you into the street and put you in chains and beat you and throw you in prison and kill you. Every single town you go to, Americans are doing this to you. That's exactly what happened. Jews, Paul's kinsmen, literally hunted him from Philippi down to Thessalonica and whenever Paul escaped them, do you know what they did? They just grabbed the nearest Christian they could find who happened to be the brand new Thessalonian Christians. They did the exact same thing to Jason and the other Thessalonian believers that they'd done to Paul. Paul says, you should rejoice in that. You suffered the exact same thing that I'm suffering, that the prophets suffered, and that our Lord Jesus <coughs> suffered. Rejoice in your suffering for Jesus' sake because you are a friend of the gospel. We believe this word is saving. This is why denominations and networks and associations are so important. 
They are the practical outworking of the fact that we believe this truth, that we have friends in the faith. These connections to churches across the United States and across the globe are an encouragement to us because when we hear about how they're bearing up under trial and how they're being persecuted by their own kinsmen, we, we gather strength and we believe we can do the same thing here. We're just as much a church of Jesus Christ as they are and we're encouraged by our friends in the gospel. We believe this word is saving us. But as we close, the saving word also makes enemies. To not receive this word of Paul's is to not be saved. And if you are not saved by the gospel, Paul makes it very plain, you are an enemy of the gospel. There is no one on the sideline. Either you are an ally of the gospel or an enemy. And not only that, Paul says, you actually are taking up league with those who murdered the prophets, who persecuted Paul and the apostles, who hung the Lord Jesus Christ to die humiliatingly on a tree. You've taken up league with those people. You've made a treaty with the ones who spat on Jesus, who mocked him, abused him, stripped him naked, and nailed him to a tree before the whole world. Verse 16, Paul says, this is what you are accomplishing always filling up the measure of your sins. But the wrath has and will come upon you at last. How can Paul say this in good conscience? That the wrath of God is going to come upon the enemies of the saving word. Well, it's because Paul used to be one of them. Do you know his testimony, Paul? He was the one chasing Christians from town to town, dragging them into the town square and throwing them in prison, delivering them over to be persecuted and beaten and put to death. He was an enemy. Romans 5.10 But while I was an enemy, I was reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more now that I am reconciled, shall I be saved by his life. Paul says, that's my story. I was an enemy. And while I was an enemy, God reconciled me to himself through Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying to you this morning is that can be your story too. That while we were enemies kicking against the goads of God's word, resisting the truth, plunging headlong, pursuing every evil desire and feeling that grabs a hold of our heart in rebellion and disobedience, wanting to be our own authority, wanting to shove Jesus off his throne and establish ourselves as king over our life, that in that time, while we were doing that, God was putting his son to death so that he could have us back. Do you believe that this morning? This is the word that is saving us. It saves even the enemies of the gospel. It saved Paul. It can save you today. This is what we believe. We believe this word is the word of God. We believe this word is at work in those who believe. And we believe this word, this word is saving. Will you repent and believe today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask 
that your word would be at work in all who hear, whether a friend or an enemy of the gospel. You would soften our hearts. Give us a greater desire to be in your word so that we can become more like you, Jesus. I pray that you would do a saving work in our church through the preaching of your word as we hear it, as we share it with one another in our times together. May you save many, Lord Jesus, many enemies of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.